Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have on the show, we have a serial entrepreneur that has been around the block a few times. So without further ado, Vishal Garg, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, born and raised in, in India, but then you came to the US, but until you were seven, you were there in India. So how was life from at least whatever you can remember from that time there? Well, in India, we... we uh... My dad worked in a, in a big company. Uh, he, he had a heavy mortgage. My whole family had uh, never been professionals. We grew up, you know, they, my dad came from a small village in Rajasthan. So uh, we were like a middle-class Indian family, which uh, is to say back in the 1970s, uh, uh, a middle-class Indian family was uh, not very well off. Right. Right. So then you come here to the U.S. and was it like a big culture shock for you guys? It, it was absolutely crazy. The idea that there are buildings with swimming pools on top of them. Uh, the idea that you go to these supermarkets, there's unlimited amounts of food. You know, India was still, I think our last famine in India was like in the 1970s. Uh, and, and then, the, like, I remember the first big image was I turned around at JFK and in India, the airports look like boxes, right? It's like a, someone just opened a crate and like, that's a box. And I saw Eero Saarinen's TWA terminal, which is basically an airline terminal shaped like a bird. And I was like, this is such an amazing country that they made an airplane terminal at the airport uh, that looks like a bird. And it was like beautiful and magnificent. I was just like, wow, this is, uh, this is a very different country. Really cool, really cool. And then you went into Stuyvesant High School, which is uh, for the most gifted. So, so how did you get into the school? Well, Stuyvesant is really interesting because uh, you take a test, and there's like thirty-five thousand kids that take a test, and the top six hundred scores get in. And so, it's very different from you know what we hear about college admissions. It's just like one test, and you take it. And honestly, back then, you know, they just gave it to kids. We didn't really study for it or anything. You just take it, you know, one day you go and take a test. And honestly, like, you know, I grew up in Queens and uh, this is in like David Dinkins, New York. And, uh, you know, we had metal detectors in our school. Their kids like, you know, there were there were drug needles everywhere. And so going to local high school was not like the thing to do. Um, so I'm really happy that I got to go to Stuyvesant and there it was, you know, academics were celebrated um, and I learned a lot and I met the most amazing people. And every, and, and, and the, the beautiful thing was most of everyone was good at, at, at most things and they were always really good at one thing and super special at one thing. Like they had a super special human power. And that was amazing because... Uh, it exposed me to the wonders of humanity that every single person has a special human power and they just need to be able to find it. So what was your superpower? My superpower, I think I was good at math and good at like being able to spot an opportunity. 
or someplace where something didn't seem right. Uh, whether, and, and you know, I had lots of little businesses in, in, in high school. Like I was an early, like we had a business where we would buy stuff on sale at department stores and like thrift stores in New York and sell it on eBay. And, right. uh, you know, or we would buy books and, 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 and like cliff notes that, and, and, and sell them to kids on the internet. And so it was like super early stuff that like me and my brother worked on, um, back in like the middle of the nineties when the internet was new. And, uh, and, and I think I learned that, that hustle aspect of things, uh, at, really at Stuyvesant. And why, why after, why after college, I mean, you, you went to NYU, why did you decide to join corporate America rather than, than doing your own thing? Because I mean, it, it seems like you were already testing with, with, you know, really the entrepreneurial stuff. And why did you decide to join Morgan Stanley instead? Instead, I, I think there was two things. One, uh, I wanted to see how the system works on the inside, right? It's really easy to say things are broken, but having like studied that, I had a deep interest in economics and developmental economics and studies and history, particularly history of colonialism. And I, I didn't believe the traditional dialogue that things are broken because they're people who run big companies don't know what they're doing. I was like suspicious. I was like, do people who run big companies actually know what they're doing? Is this thing broken on purpose? And if it's on purpose, how, what is the way to actually fix it? And it may be, you know, you've got to figure out all the different beneficiaries. You've got to figure out which of them is the weakest. And then you, from there, like figure out like whether you can displace one of them or not. And um, so I, I joined Corporate America to learn about how things actually work from the inside. And it was an amazing experience. So what did you see that was broken? I saw the, I started to see that the capital allocation process was broken. That because fundamentally, uh, things are hard to analyze and data is in all sorts of different places. Uh, there were all sorts of arbitrages that were available and the people that had technology working for them and had money frequently weren't willing to kind of do the work to go after them. And so if we could, if one could harness that technology and that money and be willing to, to work harder to go after them, then that could be a good business. And the other thing that I saw uh, that was really interesting was that uh, in investment banking, there are, because of the size and the scale of those transactions, they are able to achieve uh, a depth of analysis and a, preci a precision of analysis that's quite extraordinary. Uh, but I wondered why we couldn't take those same tools, which are really for the most part, tools and templates in Excel and use that to like make the analysis of people better. Like, cause I was like, well, you know, I grew up poor, smart and hungry in Queens. And I was like, well, why can't I use the same tools that people use to analyze big companies, to analyze like small, you know, people with potential. Like, you know, and, 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 and I started thinking about that because um, that seemed to be like a much bigger and more interesting problem to solve. Like Got lowering it. the cost of capital for a company like was kind of cool, right? Maybe if it's a company that's doing good things, that gets a little bit cooler. Maybe if it's like a technology company that's like doing, you know, changing the world, that gets even better. But man, what if you could use all those tools to like change like the allocation of capital for 7 billion people on this planet? who don't really have access to capital today. And that was, I think, the eye-opening thing for me. So then, so then tell us about the, um, how, well, I mean, your, your first business was a one-zero capital outside of Morgan Stanley and, and really in the entrepreneurial world. So, so what was that transition into one-zero capital? 
So what happened was I actually went on a pitch with Mary Meeker. I was the analyst staffed uh, on a uh, on on the I was like working in uh, in M and A and doing Latin America, and I was uh, I was sort of deeply interested in technology. So I got staffed on all the like dot com uh, stuff coming out of Latin America at that time. This is like 1997, 98. And I, so I got staffed on this deal and I had always thought my whole life, like I've got to wait till like I'm 30, 35 to start a company. And here I was going to pitch, uh, this company, uh, star media. And the CEO was like 25 and you know, Mary Meeker, myself, like eight people. Obviously, I carried the books, made the printed them out. Well, you know, spent the night putting them together. And I'm like, we're pitching these people, these guys. I'm like, I'm on the wrong side of the table. Here, this guy, like who's only four years older than me, is out there changing the world and and like making the internet better for a billion people in Latin America. And here I am making pitch books at night. And I like, so I said, screw this. Uh, so I quit. And I didn't have a plan. I just, I'm like, I'm on the wrong side of history here. So I quit, I quit on my, actually I quit on my 21st birthday. I asked my parents permission to quit. And my dad like surprisingly said yes. And you know, he's like, well, if you plan to quit, you're gonna quit later. And if you're gonna do something later, you might as well do it now. And uh, so I quit and I'm like, okay, what can I do to get, be part of this, to be part of the internet revolution? So I was like, because I had worked at a couple of other hedge funds in the past, I was like, well, I can start a fund that invests in these companies and I would have a competitive advantage uh, because I was young and like, how do I turn my competitive disadvantage like that I'm young and new to this stuff? Well, actually, you know, everyone is new to this stuff in like 1997, 98, 98 to the internet. Like, so it's not a competitive disadvantage, so I could come and, and, and put that together. So I went back to some of my old mentors, uh, was able to raise uh, a little bit of money uh, for a small hedge fund uh, that would invest in uh, technology companies in the emerging markets, in India, in Latin America. Again, places where people didn't want to go, right? But where I thought the impact of the internet could be much higher. And, uh, and then, you know, I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time and uh, and things really took off with that fund. Um, so how big then, is this? How how big is this fund today, Vishal? Well, today uh, there. So what happened is uh, is I, I I was able to significantly outperform all the indices and uh, basically uh, you know survive through the dot com bust. Yeah. And then uh, my biggest investor said to me, this is in like middle of 2000, my biggest investor said to me, well, what do you have plans to do next, right? Like, so you survived the bust and you, you kind of got out, but you didn't, you know, what are you going to invest in next? And I said, uh, well, I don't know. I'm going to figure it out. And then he took all, and then he sent me a redemption notice and withdrew all of his money. Oh, man. And, 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 and I was like, Oh my God. And so the only money left was just my incentive fees, the 20% of the share of the profits that I had made. And I think he did me the biggest favor because I would have messed it up. I would have like, I was mad at him, uh, but I would have messed it up. I would have like gone and, you know, tried to reinvest in those companies, but without a clear plan. Right. Whereas like my strategy was a clear strategy. So then I was like forced to like be like, okay, now I'm just like managing my own money. I have much more money than any like 22 year old should have. But what do I do with it? And then I got back to, I'm like, I started starting to think about it. I was like, this guy just made a whole bunch of money on me. Man, I wish like I could have made this much money for myself. And then I started thinking, oh, uh, wouldn't it have been great if instead of selling a piece of my like intellectual capital that this person leveraged to make a great return and then just take money out? What if I had just sold a piece of myself? Like, cause that's what really I was doing is selling. And so that was the concept for my next company, uh, MyRichUncle.com, which was uh, back in 2000, uh, I, will, I stopped doing the hedge fund stuff to uh, basically create uh, what was then going to be the first direct from person to person platform for anyone to invest in anyone's future income potential and future human capital. And so we created a company called Myra Junkle, which would let anyone invest in someone else 
based on how much money they were going to make in the future. Um, and the first application of that was in the context of students and helping kids pay for college by allowing them to sell a piece of their future income once they graduated to a network of investors. Um, and that became my next project. Got it. So then, so then how did you capitalize this company? Because I know that you guys ended up doing a, an IPO in 2005, which is pretty amazing. But, yeah. but how did you capitalize this business? So I, uh, I put up $30,000 and, uh, and then uh, my fund invested about a million dollars. And then we, uh, we hit the road. Really and, cool. And, uh, and we, uh, we just, you know, there were some dark years, 2002, 2003. Uh, you know, and I remember, like, we got a term sheet from an investor to invest, you know, $5 million in the company. And I remember I was in, uh, on vacation at the end of the year, but I got an email from Chase saying that my bank account had gotten, the company's bank account had gone negative. So I literally had to fly back to New York to deposit $25,000 in the bank account because we would have like audited financials that we would need as of like December 31st. Um, so it was, it was pretty dark, but ultimately we uh, figured out that the model of helping people sell a percentage of their future income to others um, was not going to be legally viable across all 50 states. Uh, we did a lot of research, and, it, we, and, and so we had to figure out a way to pivot to serve our customer base. And so we decided, why don't we make, instead of equity contracts in people based on how much money they'll make in the future, why don't we make a smarter student loan, basically using someone's academic performance and their academic data instead of their FICO score to make student loans. And so Myrich Uncle became the first online student loan company and became the first student loan company to use academics and future income prospects to help price student loans. And that was in 2004, and we, we launched our student loan platform, uh, myrichuncle.com, and uh, it caught on. It caught so on how, like... How, sorry, old were you, how old were you, Vishal, when, when you guys took this thing IPO in, in 2005? I was 26 years old. Wow. I mean, really, really cool. So, at the peak of the uh, of the business, how big was the business? It was three hundred people. It was a four hundred and fifty million dollar market cap company. And you know, things things like today trade at price to revenue multiples, and back then they traded at price to earnings. And like, we were starting to make you know twenty million dollars a year or so, and on our way to making fifty million dollars a year. Uh, by uh, 2007, we were the fourth largest student loan company in the United States. And by 2008, we actually survived a lot of the initial pieces of credit crisis. We were the second largest private student lender in the United States, uh, you know, in operation. Um, most of the company over time got acquired by Merrill Lynch. Um, and they became uh, our banker, our equity owners, up and down the capital structure. And then, unfortunately, even though we survived a lot of the credit crisis, uh, after Merrill Lynch got acquired by Bank of America, uh, because we were actively competing with then Bank of America student loan business, and Merrill Lynch was in deep trouble, um, they took us over, shut us down. Wow. So what, how were those moments for you? I'm sure they were not very easy. It was dark. It was so... We did everything to keep that company alive. Uh, but, you know, the credit crisis and the, 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 you know, October, November, December of 2008, like AIG went down, Citibank nearly failed, right? Uh, all the biggest banks in the country had bailouts, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, everyone got bailed out. Uh, we were not, we were, you know, we were smart enough to succeed, but too small to be bailed out. And... Uh, and I, it was sad because we had built something that was helping, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids lower the rate on their student loan. Um, I remember using our own equity dollars because we had committed uh, like money to kids to get funded. And then Merrill Lynch withdrew the funding. So literally we used our own money to help those kids because those kids were going to wanted us to they, they needed us. They were relying on us to fund their tuition. Uh, in September and October, we had the tuition pay dates. 
but it also taught me the like the most the you know do to do the right thing. Like ultimately, we are you know when we are in a, a business like consumer credit, we are impacting people's lives, and people will forgive you for losing them money. Investors will forgive you for losing them money, but people will not forgive you for doing the wrong thing. And 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 what was remarkable about my rich uncle was that people remembered and. Literally, two weeks after Maryland shut us down, they called me back in. They're like, called me, and as I said, hey, we need some help managing these loans. And I'm like, I'm sure if they didn't, if they, we didn't do the right thing, they wouldn't have called me. And then UBS called me, and then a whole bunch of other banks started calling me. And honestly, again, it's just a question of like, even, un, even when the chips are down, do the right thing. And people will remember. Um, and uh, but it was hard. It was really, really, really hard because you had oh, to make some very hard, strong decisions as to like there's only like a certain there's like four people who are hungry, and you only have one slice of pizza left. Who are you going to feed? And ultimately, we fed our customers. We took care of our customers, and because we took care of our customers, I had a everyone else because and we could hand on heart say that we did that all these banks all these other people they got dragged down with the crisis they had negative press all that my rich uncle nothing so then so then vishal out of every breakdown there's a breakthrough what was that breakthrough moment for you i think the breakthrough moment came a little bit later when i realized that basically the banking system was fundamentally broken, that the access to credit like in this country and maybe globally, the way it had worked in the past was that you had this local bank and the local banker, and the local banker knew a lot about the consumer, knew a lot about what they were going to do with the money, and was able to provide a lot of context around what was happening. And, you know, banks used to look like temples and you'd walk in and you'd walk in to be like basically judged. And in exchange, you got judged and whether what you wanted to use the money for got judged and then you got money. And then because you had that human touch to it, you would tend to pay it back. And there were some problems with that structure, uh, racism, sexism, a bunch of other things. But those are problems that you could surmount via technology. But what had happened was technology was applied to look to to distribute that product nationally. It was applied to remove all of that context and like call centerize the whole thing and put it like into some rigid rules and scored. And all that rich context was lost. And fundamentally, the wheel and then in order to make the employees cost lower, they all became commissioned workers and so their interests didn't align with the consumers anymore the banks kind of still want their interests aligned with the consumers they're actually explicitly aligned with the consumers but the workers in the banks their interests aren't aligned with the consumers because the higher interest rate you give to a consumer the more commission you get the bigger loan amount you give to a consumer the more commission you get and so i realized the core functioning aspects so banks are really good at taking in deposits they're really bad at making loans. And it was pervasive. And it was something that was not going to get fixed within the banking system. And right. the banks needed help to do that. And, and, and just at that same time, um, all of this is going on. I see that you know, the evolution of matching engines and marketplaces taking place where the technology and the cost of the technology has now caught up, is now there, had now decreased so much that you could actually make a functioning matching engine with all of the data and all the context, like in, 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 in you know, instances like OkCupid or Spotify. Uh, and that same thought process and technology could be applied to matching people and capital to finance the needs of people. So then at what point, uh, Vishal, uh, was uh, Future Finance born? Your next business, your next rodeo? 
And before we get there, one lesson learned from, from this journey, one lesson learned. What was that one lesson learned for you with uh, my rich uncle? The biggest lesson I learned from my rich uncle was that if you deliver value to the consumer, it might take them a while, but they will come. And then when they come, they will come in droves that you will not be able to push, hold them back. So no matter what anyone says, first principles, deliver value to the consumer. If you are not delivering value to the consumer, to the consumer you do not deserve to exist. That's it. Product market fit as well. So Vishal, let's talk about future finance. At what point, you know, what, what was that transition from you for you from my rich uncle to future finance and, and what was the incubation process and how did this same, uh, you know, come to fruition? So what happened with future finance was actually interesting. So I was, I was, I was back to like running my fund and investing in things and so on and so forth. And I did that for about three years. Um, and then I saw in, um, in 2012, I saw a news article where, uh, where suddenly the United Kingdom government, as a result of austerity, was going to increase tuition on college in the UK from 3,000 pounds a year to 9,000 pounds a year. And there were protests taking place on the streets of London with students saying, how am I going to come up with this money? You know, 3,000 pounds, you can come in, come up with, like, if you're a working class or, and, uh, you know, you can bartend, you can restaurant wait, you can do a bunch of other things. And you uh, work over the summer, you can come up with 3,000 pounds. Suddenly, 9,000 pounds, uh, which at that time, the pound was like $2 to a pound. That's like 18 grand. Like, 9,000 pounds, suddenly the 12 grand, that's hard to come up with. And so I thought, like, there seems to be an opportunity so Future Finance was my rich uncle, Europe. And I thought this opportunity existed and that like basically um, that opportunity existed around Europe where governments were, were, were stepping back from financing all of education themselves or making education free. And so I saw a market need. Uh, I was able to uh, partner up with Blackstone, Goldman Sachs, uh, and a host of UK family offices uh, to raise money uh, and invest in equity. And uh, I assembled a team um, and we got started. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think, look, as a second time entrepreneur and someone who had taken a company, you know, public before had been in this vertical, I would say this time it was much more about just um, people were not thinking about execution risk. They were really actually worried about market risk. Like, is the market there? And I said, like, guys, if we wait for the market to be there, like, till it shows up in, like, some McKinsey consultants report, it will already have been won by somebody else. So we yeah. got to, like, we got to go make the market. We know the need is there. There are these kids riding on the streets, like, because they're not going to be able to pay tuition next year. Uh, like, that need is there. It's, like, on the telly. So, um, so basically, so your, your role there, Vishal, what, uh, what you really did there is, you saw the problem and then you kind of like assembled the team and then you let that one fly. That's right. So I, I was, I was the founder and I took the, I was a chairman. And honestly, the, the one thing was, I was like, after my uncle, after eight years of that, I was like, I never want to run a startup again. It's so hard. It's so, it's so all consuming. I was like, I think, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to do it. And ultimately, honestly, I wasn't willing to move to the, to, to, to the UK. Uh, my kids were, uh, you know, now in school here. And uh, I just thought it would be disruptive for my family. Um, and I wasn't going to be the best person at it. Um, so I, 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 I let that go. And, you know, I think that and turned out to be a good choice because it helped me uh, when I decided that, like, we weren't going to move to the UK. I started looking for a place to buy here. Right. And and before 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 we uh, we we move to the next uh, to the next initiative. So what whatever happened with Future Finance? Future Finance is now the largest student loan company in Europe. Really cool. And I've seen that they've raised something like four hundred and fifty million. Is that right? Yeah. Really cool. And right now your your role there is is just the founder, or are you still active with the business? I, I'm an advisor to the business, but I'm not active. They have an amazing team. They're growing. They're on. You know. They're they're growing. They're, they're building a market. 
but it's not easy. Honestly, like they've raised a ton of money, but it's not easy making the market, right? They're the first company in the space. It's going to take them some time. I think that's like, you know, if I was giving you one piece of advice, anything good takes time. What, you know, a lot of people get into startups and they say, okay, I'm going to come and make this company and I'm going to flip it in four years. Honestly, most startups, like to make a company that's actually good and valuable, it probably takes eight to 10 years. Yeah, it's a persistence and a lot of patience and, and consistency. So, so for you then, Climb Credit, how did Climb Credit come about? I came back to the U.S. and one of my uh, partners in my fund, he said, look, like, why aren't you, well, you know, look at SoFi, look at, you know, all these other companies doing U.S. student loans. Why don't we do U.S. student loans as well? And I said, honestly, I can't do U.S. student loans anymore because college just costs too much. It's like $70,000 to go to college. The rate of return on higher education, which used to be 18%, is barely 6%. And so why would you lend somebody money at 7% or 8% to invest in an asset that returns 6%? That doesn't really make sense, right? So if the average return is 6% like, and the average interest rate is 8%, at least half the people you're lending money to are making a negative ROI decision. And so I did not like the way that it was attacked. So um, my partner, Xander, said, no, 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 no. I, I know the founder of, of General Assembly, and he's amazing. You should see what they're doing. They're taking, you know, English majors who are, like, drumming in a band in Williamsburg and turning them into, you know, web developers or data scientists. And I was like, that's pretty cool. And so I went down to see General Assembly down in Union Square. I was like, whoa, no, this is, this is grad school. This is the grad school of the future. And I went to visit a few other coding boot camps. And each and every one of these coding boot camps said, you know what, this is really messed up. We're really actually helping kids. Uh, we're helping people like get retrained after college, like college, like they got a, they got a liberal arts degree And, you know, they're not accustomed, they can't be participants in the new economy, but we can take them and in three months make them like a really meaningful participant in the new economy. I was like, wow, you're totally right. And we're pumping out like millions of these kids a year in college with like $200,000 of student loan debt, and they still don't have a skill that an employer needs. And so I thought there was going to be something big there. And each of these schools could not get money from the government. They were not eligible for the federal student loan program because they hadn't been around for three years. The federal student loan program requires you to have three years of data before you can actually uh, get access to federal money. But the world is moving so fast that like getting three years of data on a course, like you might change the course, like the programming language might change. So it's like right. crazy. Like, like there are these rules written for a world that is static or really slowly changing and the world is changing way faster. So I was like, that's interesting. I was like, Maybe there's a way that we could align all the incentives, right? What if the school, like, guaranteed some part of the loan? And that way the school had some skin in the game along with the students. School, you know, there's not really any product sold in America today that costs $10,000, $30,000 to the consumer that doesn't have a warranty on it other than higher education. Right. Like I buy a $10,000 car, I get a seven year warranty. Like I buy a $200,000 college degree and I get good luck, right? I get a piece of paper. So, um, you know, I think like, could the school guarantee it? And, uh, and, and if that would be cool, then, you know, you could create some, a platform for investors to participate. So, um, you know, I, I thought about this. I was like, I came back and I was like, look, you know what? I'm just, I'm super interested, but I'm not sure I'll take a bet on it. Worst case, what happens? I lose all my money and, uh, and a bunch of kids like got their careers transformed. Cool. So I put up a, a million dollars in an experimental pool to fund kids to, that were studying at General Assembly. And 
And those kids came out of one class and they did amazing. And we could see the data right after like three months. And so then I increased the size of the pool to like $3 million. And then I started talking to some of my friends and uh, one of the guys that had worked with us and invested in future finance uh, at Blackstone really liked it. And then we got, uh, you know, we got Blackstone to be an equity partner and provide a, uh, a lending facility. And so they committed over $100 million. And then from there, we've had Goldman Sachs. We've had a number of other prominent VCs uh, invest in Climb Credit. Climb Credit is the largest financing company for the new economy uh, training, career retraining. Uh, in America, they do not just coding boot camps, but nursing schools, teaching schools, a bunch of other things. And, um, and that company is doing, going gangbusters. Uh, I'm the chairman. I'm not the CEO. Again, like same, same thing. Like I didn't, I didn't yeah. think that I was going to be the person to push this forward. Um, and uh, why, why, why was that the case, Michelle? Why did you think you were not the right person? Because my prior company had failed Got in it. student lending. Ultimately, you know, I didn't want them burdened by that baggage. So many people did not care, but some people did. And, you know, the average of that still is that some people did. And so if that was going to look, startups have a very low probability of success. So whatever you can do to increase your chance of success or decrease your chance of failure, uh, that can be huge. So if startups already have a 90% likelihood of death, right, why would you choose to like make that 91%, Yeah. right? You know, you've just suddenly lowered your chances of success by 10%. So, so, then, so then how much capital did the climb, has Climb Credit raised so far? I think Climb Credit has raised over $150 million wow. uh, from Goldman Sachs, from Blackstone, and a bunch of education and social impact focused venture capital companies. And, and as the chairman that you are here, Vishal, what makes the role of a chairman? Who, who do you need to be as a chairman to be effective? I think you need to be, uh, play the role of mentor, coach, and uh, communicator of bad things to the internal team. And the go-between between the investors and other constituents and the management team. Um, so I think your core goal is to showcase perspectives that they may not be considering. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so why don't we talk here about your, your next rodeo where you actually take the reins, Better Mortgage. How, how did the idea of Better Mortgage come together? So uh, while all this is going on in New York, um, we, uh, we had ha my wife and I had had uh, a baby boy and we were expecting a second. And uh, we started looking at things like schools and uh, where we wanted to live. And we realized, and, and one day I came back and my landlord, the super came through and he said, my, my son had colored the walls and that was not allowed in our apartment. And I had never thought about these things. It was my bachelor pad. And uh, we were still living in it. And so we said, no, I mean, that's not cool. Like, we need to be able to, the new baby's coming, and we need to be able to do what we want with the nursery and, uh, you know, live in the place that we want. We were putting down roots, schools, and starting to care about how playgrounds looked and things like that. And so we said we should buy a place. And so we, we, we started looking. Um, you know, based on where I was working, where my wife was working, uh, what school district we want to be in. And we basically found a couple of places. And so I was tasked with taking the first look at it. So I tried to, you know, I, I, I being in technology and finance, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to buy this place myself, right? I don't need a realtor. And so I went and reached out to the, the seller's listing agent. And I reached out like once and they didn't like respond back. Then I reached out the second time and they didn't respond back. And then I was like, screw this, this broker is not responding to me. So I found out who the owner was and it was a guy that worked at JP Morgan. So I sent him an email directly. And then he forwarded my email to his broker and his broker finally showed me the place. And we really liked the place. And then I asked the broker, wow, this is a great place. My, my wife can come and see it. 
right? But like, I have a question for you. Like, why didn't you like respond to my first two emails? He's like, well, I didn't know anything about you. I was like, <laughs> you could have been, I'm like, really? Like, and my other broker was like, I was like, that's crazy. You could have Googled me. Have you heard of something called Google? Right? right. Anyways, I was like a little surprised by that, but I'll come to that, to that a little bit later. And then the second thing, so then my wife came in and she saw the place and we're both like fairly like technical backgrounds. She's like an engineer by training. And she's like, this fits all the boxes. Let's go. Right. And uh, so we're like, we'd like to make a bit. And he said, the broker's like, okay, great. And so we said like, you know, we're going to negotiate. We'll like bid like, like, you know, 5% off the listing price and we can close and so on and so forth. He said, okay. And he said, are you going to finance this? And I said, yeah, I'm going to finance this. You know, that's what everybody does. Right. Like, and I guess that was not the right answer because he's like asked, like, are you pre-approved? I said, what is that? And I was like, really interesting. Like for someone who has been in like consumer finance and technology for 15 years, I still didn't know. I knew almost nothing about actually how a mortgage process actually works. And so he's like, well, you need a pre-approval letter. We cannot submit your offer without a pre-approval letter, uh, you know, if you're going to finance. So I said, okay, fine. I'll go get you a pre-approval letter. How hard can that be? Like, you know, I'm sure I could just get that online. So that evening I went online and I went on like lending tree and I figured like, I'll get a pre-approval letter in five minutes. It'll be like booking an airline ticket and it'll be done. And so I submitted my info and then like everyone was like, okay, I'll, we'll be back to you. We'll be, thank you for your submission. We will be back to you. Thank you for your submission. We'll be back to you. I went on all these banks websites and they're like, thank you for your submission. Someone will call you. I was like, I don't want to be called. Uh, but, you know, there's no button for that. <laughs> right. And then the next day at work and I'm in meetings and people are calling my phone incessantly and it's all like crazy phone numbers. And they're like, yeah, sure, we can get you started. Like my name's blah, blah, blah. And there was some guy from First American Funding, another guy from New American Funding, another guy from like, you know, Flagstar Funding. There was all these people. And I was like, I have no idea who the hell you are. You could be anyone. And, I, and then, you know, like someone, when you talk to them, you're like, okay, what's the rate? And nobody would tell me the rate. And like, they're like, well, we need to like you to submit an application. I was like, what's involved there? It's like your name, address, social, blah. I'm like, I'm not going to give you my social security number. You're some random guy who called me on the phone. And he's like, well, like, I'm like, don't you have a website I can enter that in? It's like, no. He's like, well, we can't do anything for you. I was like, oh, geez. And I basically like went into shell shock mode. I'm like, I can't deal with this. Then like the real estate broker call emailed me two days later. He's like, he emailed me and my wife. And he's like, where's your pre-approval letter? I thought you'd be able to get one. And I was like, I don't have it. And then my wife scheduled some time at, um, at the bank. She was actually working. She's like, well, look, my bank said that like, you know, for all of the bank's employees, they can do like, we get a discount. So we went to the bank, uh, branch in her office building. Uh, she worked like on park and 53rd and we went to the branch there and she's like, we need an hour and a half. I was like, my wife and I, we worked four blocks from each other. We'd never had lunch together. Right. Like we're like busy professionals. So here we're spending an hour and a half in this bank branch. And the guy's like asking me a bunch of stuff and I'm an entrepreneur. So I can understand like he needs to know my stuff. And I'm like, okay, fine. Then he starts asking my wife, uh, like, where do you work? It's like, well, you know, we clicked on the email that you sent. So you probably know where she works. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, how much do you make? How long have you been employed here? I was like, isn't there like this data is on the ninth floor in HR. Like, don't you have a button that just connects this stuff? And then like, yeah. I was like, and then she's asking him all this information. And I'm like, what is going on here? This is ridiculous. And then he's like, well, let me go in the back and check. And I don't know if you've ever bought a car, but you know, like the car dealer, they go in the back. And I was like, I think it's like pomp and circumstance. Like, oh, you're <laughs> to tell you your I'm going to like look some numbers and all that sort of stuff. And he comes back. He's like, great news. I'm like, good. I have this pre-approval letter. I'm going to email. He's like, great news. We'll be back to you in two to three weeks. They're like, geez, what happened? And suddenly I'm like, I'm like annoyed at myself. Cause I told the real estate broker, I would get the pre-approval like, like that. Right now, how do I walk back from there? And then I'm really annoyed at the bank. I'm like, what the hell? Why does it take them three weeks to do this stuff? Right. This is like super easy at my jungle. We'd done this in like a minute. And then I was like, you could get the data on the credit bureau from here. You could get the income verification from here. You could get the bank statement stuff from here. You could get all this stuff, right? And I was just like, what is going on? And then 
I went back and I told him, listen, this guy is going to, like, I went back to the broker and I said, we, good news, we think we're going to get approved, but we're only going to get the pre-approval letter in like three weeks. The broker's like, mad. And so we're like, okay, fine, we'll keep me updated. So now I'm keeping, he calls in and keeps me updated, tells me there's like activity on the house. My wife's like, should we start looking? But like, we already have our heart set on this place, right? Every other place doesn't look as good. So I'm like calling the Citibank guy all the time to like see where is there in progress. He doesn't pick up my phone. He doesn't get back to me, right? He doesn't send me an email. When he sends me emails, I have to like log into some system to get them because it's like a security thing and I forget the password. It's like all a mess. Finally, in three weeks, we get the pre-approval letter and we send the pre-approval letter and the offer to the, the realtor and the realtor's like, well, this pre-approval is not, there's no appraisal on it. It has an appraisal contingency, right? Like, we can't accept this pre-approval. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, like, what if it doesn't appraise? Then what are you going to do? And I was like, this is not, this is crazy. And he's like, well, you better get an appraiser in here. So then we call up the bank and the bank's like, it's going to cost, you're going to have to pay these application fees and do all this stuff. And it's going to be $52,000 of all this stuff, right, to close. And once you get the process started, then we can send an appraiser and the appraiser is going to take up to 30 days. Wow. And we're like, super daunting, pretty oh. crazy. So then what happened, Vishal? Did you get the apartment or not? No. So we lost the apartment. The guy sold the apartment to an all-cash buyer who paid 7% less than I did. At the same time all this is happening, I'm seeing like a securitization of mortgages, like the mortgage we were trying to get from this bank uh, come through. And uh, basically, I was like, wait. And I call, you call my friend at this bank. And I'm like, you guys make two to three points on these mortgages. And he's like, yeah, sometimes more, sometimes less. And I was like, <laughs> I like, so you make $20,000 on a mortgage. You know, there are people in like Japan that make a car and ship it across the ocean and they make $20,000 and you like make an 800 page document. That's and, unbelievable. and I was like, this is crazy. And then I like went and did some more research and I'm like, they're like, this is just fundamentally unfair. Like, how broken is this process? This is crazy. And I'm like, there are like 10 million mortgages made a year. So, then, I, like, so I guess, I mean, this was really the, um, what gave birth to, to Better Mortgage, where you guys are reinventing the, um, the digital mortgage experience. And I know that, that you guys here, Vishal, uh, you, you basically assembled um, a team of folks around you as the founding team. So what was the founding team like? Yeah, so I was like... This, and I started reading the Fannie Mae manual. I started looking at all these mortgage banks. I started looking at all this stuff, you know, because like now I was on a tear. I was like, if it's so broken for me, how broken is it for every other person in this country, right? And it's kind of like the same thing I had done before when thinking about like student loans are unfair, totally like I, this is totally unfair. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it better. And so we, what we realized is ultimately the bulk of mortgages in this country are decisioned and guaranteed by the government. The government sets forth a set of rules for these mortgages and sets forth a set of pricing for these mortgages and it's expressed through Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA and so on and so forth. And then a bunch of banks do that. So what we realized is actually making a mortgage is not a credit problem, it's actually a matching problem. You need to take consumer data and you need to take um, property data and create a matching system between that data and the rules and the pricing that's changing every day with the markets. And so what I went to do is say, I'm going to assemble a team that has built a large scale matching engine. And so I went and talked to two people and I found my co-founder partner, Eric Bernhardson, who had built the matching engine at Spotify which if you think about what Spotify is, like the music you like, the music your friends like, what you like to listen to, and then matching that with what's available on the, on the, rec on the catalog. And then therefore we're creating the next recommendation, the next recommendation. And, and all that data is tagged and it's a beautiful system and it delivers 80 million people uh, joy every day. And so you wouldn't think it's similar, but it's actually at a data level, very, very similar. Eric came on the team. I went to my other partner and co-founder, uh, Viral Shah, who was uh, trading uh, the first algorithmic trading, interest rate trading desk on, on, on Wall Street at Citibank. And I can, he had actually also had a terrible homeownership experience. 
He had just bought a place. I'd stayed in touch with him. He had previously worked at me for me for Admire Junkle uh, when he was a, a sophomore at, at, in high school. And uh, now he's graduated. He was more of a grown up. But I was like, cool, look, let's do we're just what we're doing. And he came on board. And then we assembled a team of just great people with customer acquisition, operations, and technology to make mortgages better. And then as part of making mortgages better, really make home ownership better. And so the past four years, we first took over. We realized that all of this is super complex. And ultimately, in order to do this, to start from scratch is really, really hard. And like my experience with, my, with student loans and my uncle would re- taught me, I don't want to actually relearn everything I don't know or learn it on the fly. What I want to do is take something like almost like a factory that already exists, that has all the rules, that has all the compliance infrastructure in place, that has the access to funding and make it much better. So we actually, instead of starting from scratch, we actually, like Tesla with their factory that they bought in Fremont, like we took over a small mortgage bank in Milpitas, California. It was like 35 people, but they were making loans and they were doing it almost entirely by hand. And what was great about the fact that they were doing it by hand, they were like actually very backwards, right? But everything was visible. So we knew what tasks the human, where, where the person added value and where it was just the data that was valuable. And we right. started taking those tasks and putting them online and making them beautiful and easy and where it was possible to get the data directly, getting that data directly. I and love it. And, and th- what we did was we basically started creating utility for the consumer and getting rid of the places where the consumer is exposed to friction just to add value to a human task. So for instance, we give rates in three seconds. Everyone else hides their rates until you like talk to them. So you can, you can go on all of our competitors' websites, the rates are not there, except like on better.com, you can add all the rates for your situation in three seconds. They won't give you a pre-approval letter unless you go and file an application to do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. We give you a pre-approval letter in three minutes. So you can spend time shopping for a house rather than shopping for a loan. And you can have confidence in how much you can actually afford. Because that's the other thing. The pre-approval letter tells you how much you can afford. And then you can go and actually like bid with confidence. If you don't know how much you can afford, what are you doing like bidding on a house? It, most people are not, that's the largest financial transaction you'll ever make, right? When you go to buy a TV set, you don't go like pick the TV set and then figure out whether you can afford it or not. You kind of have a budget. When you go buy a car, you kind of have a budget. Most people don't even know how much house they can actually afford. So we built these tools to help the consumer. And then usually they're confronted with a commissioned loan officer. And that commission loan officer, like that was the case at the bank that we bought also, right? There was a commission loan officer. The commission loan officer is getting paid one and a half percent of what your mortgage is. So if they give you a $300,000 mortgage, they make $4,500. If they give you a $400,000 mortgage, they make $6,000. So if you have a person and they're going to give you a $300,000 mortgage or a $400,000 mortgage, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to give you a more expensive mortgage at a higher loan amount. That's what they're going to do because they get paid a bigger commission. That doesn't make sense. That's just a number in Excel. We should help you get the best mortgage for the best house you can afford. Doesn't matter what you know size of the mortgage is. Doesn't matter what rate it is. And so we realized there, getting rid of all the commission loan officers and creating the first non-commissioned mortgage company in America was something that we could do. And it was like, you know, you know what used to happen at Sears? You'd go to Sears and you'd have a Sears shopper department that was a commissioned person. And you know what happened to that person? They went away because Amazon can tell you that if you buy like some glasses that are like tumblers, that you might want some glasses that are like espresso glasses. Like that, like people who bought this bought this. And we could have the machine do that and we could take all the savings from there and give it back to the consumer so they could get a better house. And that's well, that, has, that, that has been a trend, David, shall we think, with removing the, um, the middleman. So, so I guess for, for this business, how much capital have you guys raised so far? Uh, we've now raised over $150 million. 
Got it. And I see that you guys have great people like Kleiner and 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 who else? I see here Goldman Sachs, IA Ventures, even American Express. So so how big American is the company Express, now? Citibank, uh, American Express, Citibank, Ally Bank, Goldman Sachs, Kleiner Perkins. So like the best of the East Coast and the West Coast. Cool. It's nothing like having the best of both coasts. So how big is the better uh, today? Uh, we now have 600 people. We're funding 250 million a month of loans. We're on track to do over three and a half billion of loans this year, up from 1.3 billion last year, which is up from 450 million the year before. So we're we've 10x the company in two years. I love it. I love it. So so I guess uh, now you know, kind of like um, looking back. I mean, was there like a point where where you were like uh, like a tipping point or or a point where you were like, I think it we're into something really big here. There was a customer who sent me an email. And uh, and what's been awesome at Better is like doing it the second time I, and doing it myself. Like I, it's a lot of work and I'm older now. I'm like 41. It's so much work. It's so different when you're 27. Right. But like what I realize is I can do it like my way this time. So like I give consumers the ability to email me anytime they want in the process, vg at better.com. And, um, and I answer those emails. So consumer emails to me and says, thank you. Uh, you have, you have really changed something for me and my family because what you allowed me to do was increase my budget due to the better rate you gave me by $30,000 compared to other companies. And this has allowed me to shop for houses in better school zones with shorter commutes to my work. And I was like, oh my God. And it was like a tough day. I'd had a tough day. I was like, you made my day. This is amazing. Because I've been like searching for the meaning. Like finance is fine, but like, what do we allow people to do? We allow people to have a better house in a better school district with a better commute so they can spend more time with their children, they can enjoy their lives and their lives can be better. And that connection of purpose towards a basic human need, a, a roof over our heads, a home for our souls, a home for our family, that was just like amazing. And I realized if we could do that and we could do that every day, every day we could do that and walk out of the, when we leave the office, we say, today we made, home better for X number of people, whether it's 50 people, 100 people, 1,000 people. Today, we made home better for them. And they're going to remember that for the next 30 years. Uh, I was like, we can win. We're going to win. And we're not going to win like small. We're not going to win like medium. We might win the whole thing. <laughs> I love it. And, and, and there goes the name of the company, Better. So, so Vishal, uh, I guess, I mean, such, a, such an incredible journey that you've had as an entrepreneur. Uh, been at it several times in, in different roles. Uh, but I guess now, um, if you had the opportunity to sit down with, with your younger self, with that, Vishal, that was about to give the, um, the, um, the, the, the notice at Morgan Stanley and, and, and going to, to build his first business, if you had the chance to really speak to your younger self, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why? Uh... Never quit. It's going to take longer than you expect. People will give up on you. Your investors will give up on you. Your friends will give up on you. But if the consumer keeps clicking, then you should not quit because the consumer will not give up on you. The customer will not give up on you. And if you do not give up on them, You will win. So I love it. I love it. So who is Vishal during one of those moments where you're thinking about, you know, quitting as, a, as an option? Who, who, who is that Vishal in one of those moments to really, you know, bounce back and make it happen? I, 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 I think whenever I'm like really like down, when, when I'm really, really down, I, 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 I really, I, I do this. I go, go look at the customer feedback. I go look at the people that work here. And 
and like interact with the customers. And I'm like, what happened today? And it's always energizing. That's amazing. Even some of the bad stuff, it's always energizing because it's like, and then I go home and go to sleep and like try to go to sleep as soon as possible, end the day as quickly as possible. <laughs> wake up the next morning and like get back at it. That's it. I love the energy, Vishal. So what is the, uh, what is the best way for the folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? VG at better.com, just like every one of my customers. Amazing. Well, uh, Vishal, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, uh, it's been really great uh, talking to you, and uh, best of luck to everyone listening. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.